Welcome to Mental Health Film Comment. This is Brian here with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. The 2007 documentary, A Summer in the Cage, which is on YouTube, by the way. So if you'd like to pull up the movie on YouTube and listen to this podcast as a commentary track, while you're watching the movie, you're more than welcome to do so. In fact, that's one of the points, one of the goals of this podcast, and I'll address that in just a moment. The word documentary for many people conjures up images of cinematic broccoli. It's good for you, but is the movie any good? Hmm, maybe, maybe not. Point in fact, I love documentary movies, and we're in a golden age of documentary film for the last 5, 10, 15 years, 20 years, probably longer. So many amazing, amazing movies, including this award-winning documentary about bipolar disorder. This movie debuted on the Sundance Channel in the U.S. in 2007. In 2008, it was honored with the PRISM Award for Bipolar Depiction by the Entertainment Industries Council, and in 2009, honored by Mental Health America. Now, the reason that this will be a commentary track is for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, and this may be self-evident to many listeners and may not be self-evident to others, but you're not alone. If no one's told you that today, let me tell you, you are not alone. For many of us who do not have someone special in our lives, if there's no partner, if there's no friend, something as seemingly trivial as watching a movie, as going to a movie, as watching a movie on Netflix, can often be a traumatic experience because it's you, yourself, and no one else. It's a social activity made a solitary activity because there's nobody to watch the movie with you. And so when I tell you, you are not alone, you really are not alone. I will be watching the movie with you. Now, because this movie will undoubtedly be a trigger, I'm going to give you the crisis text line to write down for your reference. If you're in the U.S., text NAMI, N-A-M-I, or home, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 if you're in the U.S. If you're in the U.K., text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. So the second reason is that as with any other commentary that you may see on a DVD, if you've ever watched it on a DVD, there's often a commentary track about the making of the movie. You'll hear a, a director or an actor talk about the making of. But there's not, uh, there's not, there's frequently not much discussion about the issues addressed. If it's an issue related to bipolar, depression, anxiety, any, any of the topics under the mental health umbrella. And so this podcast will be that outlet for an informed commentary track for movies of particular significance to mental health education and empowerment. 
So if you would like to pull up the movie on YouTube, press pause, and I will be on the other side of the pause button. So now that the movie's starting, just so we're on the same page, so to speak, 34 Luke films is what you'll see on the, now it went black and it's going to be starting any minute now. So the very first line of this movie, all directors want is a good story. That, that line really sticks with me whenever I see this movie because you can take it a couple different ways. Number one way you can take it is that he's being super, super cynical and jaded as in this director, Ben Selkow. He doesn't really care about me. He, he's, he's just going for a quick buck. He wants to be as sensationalist and exploitive as possible. And he's not approaching it from an altruistic manner. So that's one way to look at it. Um, I do want to mention, just by way of a fun fact, as it were, the director, Ben Selkow, his interest in film originates from a movie he saw his mother in. His mother was a psychologist. And the movie that he saw was a documentary about uh, treatment of schizophrenia called The Forbidden, the uh, original Canadian-French title, Linterdeet from 1976. The movie was never officially released in the US, I would imagine because it was made for Canadian television and also because it is in the French language. The website for the National Film Board of Canada, nfb.ca, does have this movie on their website. As long as you know French and aren't worried about there being English, English subtitles, it's well worth a look. It really is. Um, director Ben Selko, he also went on to direct a documentary about post-traumatic stress disorder called Buried Above Ground. Buried Above Ground is on the Tubi movie streaming site. Uh, Tubi spelled T-U-B-I if you want to see the Buried Above Ground. Uh, now, uh, the cage in the movie is a legendary basketball court in New York. And there's undoubtedly any number of different uh, similes and metaphors as far as cage as it relates to mental health and bipolar and depression and mania and all that goes along with that. So it's kind of interesting that he kept the movie name the same even when it changed focus. The movie originally intended, as we're learning right now, intended to be a movie about basketball, about street basketball. Uh, insert your white man can't jump jokes here because he points out, they call him Clark Kent. He's the only white guy on the court. So yeah, I'm going to make some white men can't jump jokes. Uh, I would imagine, I think the movie came out much later than the white, white men can't jump. It's then white man can't jump. Didn't it come out in the 90s, I think? Not in 80s, but I think 90s or even uh, in the millennium. But in any event, uh, you're, you're going to hear some discussion about a former U.S. Senator Bill Bradley and what this pertains to for those of you who are outside of the U.S. And even those who are in the U.S., what he's referring to is that when someone runs for president, and in the U.S., there are ma mainly two parties, the Twiddle-Dee Party and the Twiddle-Dum Party. And no, I'm not going to get dragged into politics. I'm going to keep it as Twiddle-Dee and Twiddle-Dum. But the way the process works is that if someone wants to run for president, they're going to be running either as a Twiddle-Dee or Twiddle-Dum. 
And what the, what the primary process means is that all the people under the Twiddle D banner who want to run for president, they all campaign to who's going to be the flag bearer to, to run against the other party. And Bill Bradley was someone who was one of those candidates to run in, in the primary process. Um, now, what, what's particularly interesting, particularly watching this in 2020, is that he mentions his uh, essentially a dream ticket between, uh, you know, with, with a Bill Bradley as a president and Colin Powell as the vice president. Now, if you're in the U.S. and even if you're not in the U.S., those two, um, those, those two candidates, as it were, are from different, uh, different aisles of the political spectrum. Uh, Bill Bradley is on the Twiddle D party. Uh, Colin Powell is on the Twiddle Twiddle Dumb side of the ticket, and it's not that common, particularly not now. I don't know if it ever will be ever coming again, for two candidates to be running on the same ticket from different different parties. It might be common in other countries, but in the U.S., that is uh, it's a novelty. And for him to mention that in the movie watching this in 2020, that's a, a nice little Easter egg, as it were. It's a, an absolutely a, a very nice Easter egg to, to, to see in this movie in, um, in, 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 in 2020. Um, but this movie, it's a, um, it works on so many levels. It works as a basketball documentary. It really does. It's not, at the end of the day, it's not a basketball documentary to the extent that, uh, that, that, a, hoop dreams, that a Hoop Dreams is. And I know that everyone's going to say Hoop Dreams isn't, isn't about basketball. Um, neither is this, but it is still a basketball movie because that is the basis of how this movie got to be made. If it weren't for basketball, there would be no A Summer in the Cage. This movie would not exist if it weren't for basketball. And so I, I just want to emphasize that. The other thing that, that, that I want to mention is that art. Uh, he mentions his friend's photography, uh, which I'm happy to hear about because the arts is uh, you know, an incredibly valuable uh, tool in the toolbox for recovery in, in, in your toolbox. And the fact that he has photography taking pictures on, on the court, that, that, that's a nice um, little bonus, as it were, because it's not just about his journey along bipolar, but it's also about his photography to a certain extent. And it's also about his, his, his visions for America, his visions of what he would like America to look at, to, to look like. And in a lot of ways, it, it parallels an, a certain other public figure who I'm not going to mention because I don't want to lend more publicity to this public figure. But when I hear him talk in this movie, A Summer in the Cage, about his ideas for the American political discourse, when I hear that in 2020, I cannot help be reminded of a certain political figure who is saying very, very similar things. Um, now this movie is, like I said, it is a triggering movie and it absolutely is a very, very triggering movie for a lot of people. It, one of the things that, that's very disturbing about it is in this computer lab scene. 
it's a little creepy. It is more than a little creepy. Um, most people don't know, but it's, it's, it's alluded to in this, in this scene. Whenever you're in a movie, even a documentary, especially in a documentary, before the movie wraps, well, maybe not at that point, but when you're, when you're in a documentary, you have to sign a release. A movie does not get released. A documentary I'm referring to, but in general, any movie. A documentary movie does not get released unless you have a signed release signed, notarized, lawyers vetted it, until you have a signed release from everyone in that movie. You just don't do it. It's, it, it's potentially illegal because the person in the movie is not a public figure. And so you need their permission to use them in their, their image and a likeness in this movie. So the computer lab scene is a little creepy. And there's someone in the, in the um, when the camera's on, it, it's sort of, your, your hair sort of stands up on, on the back of your arms. Um, so here's, wh here's where the, the movie starts to get real. It really gets a little heavier at this, where he gets admitted in, um, in um, he's admitted and diagnosed with bipolar. Now, one of the things that's really notable about this documentary that you don't see in other documentaries is the way the interview segments, and there are only a few interview segments, one of which is with Dr. K. Redfield Jameson, is typically the interview is not filmed at such a close-up as it is filmed here. See, it, it cuts to a close-up right now. It, it cuts to her face in a close-up. What's more common in most documentary films is that it's at a somewhat medium shot um, focus where you see there you see them sitting at a desk or you see them standing up where you might see uh, some some plaques in the background you might see a you know, filming pictures in the background all the interviews and I say all the interviews maybe two or three in this movie are in close-up super super close-up in some cases um, so it, it, it lends itself to a lot of intimacy that the subject matter for this movie bipolar and uh, navigating through the uh, treatment options is it's an intimate film. It really, really is an intimate film. And the way this interview segment is filmed is evidence of that. You're not gonna get that same level of intimacy if it's a, if it's a, a mid-level shot where you see someone sitting at, at their desk on the other side of the room. It's just not gonna feel that intimate. Now, uh, Kay Redfield Jameson, she is a clinical psychologist at Johns Hopkins. She was named a hero of medicine by Time Magazine in 1997. And she's written more than a few books on the subject. She's written An Unquiet Mind. She's written Night Falls Fast. She's written uh, Touched with Fire manic depressive illness and the artistic temperament. So she's someone who is by, by all means an authority on the subject. She's someone who if you see in her movie, she knows what she's talking about. So, uh, and like I said, you can't go wrong with any of her books. Uh, and I believe all of her books are recommended from what I've, I've, I've seen online. Uh, so, but, but a lot of statistics, I think many of those hold true. Uh, one in 100 have a severe form, 3.5% uh, of the population. I would imagine it, it's a little greater now than when this movie was made. It is still fairly common. Uh, one thing I do want to mention as a point of clarification, 
uh, in, the, in the time since the movie was made is that there are now uh, four types of bipolar. There is bipolar one, uh, bipolar two, which is hypomanic with major depressive, uh, cyclothymic disorder, which is typically mood swing. And then there's a fourth option, which is bipolar due to another disorder. So it's, it's true that there are two bipolars, bipolar one, bipolar two, that is true. It's also true that now there is a distinction between four types of bipolar. Um, one of the things that really um, caught my attention with this movie is that he has a lot of resources available to him. And many people don't. I, I don't say that to be mean or critical or sarcastic, but that is something that is just, you know, loud and clear. Throughout the movie, you'll hear comments about him going back to New York, going back to New York, going back to California, going to California, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I mention that because not everybody will have that same benefit. I do not have that benefit. Many people listening do not have that benefit. Um, so that's something that, that I do want to just make mention of is that the, the race and class that he mentioned early, early in the movie as far as the uh, basketball uh, movie, the, the, the class is something that is very, very critical as it relates to the treatment of bipolar because I don't have the luxury of hopping on a plane to fly wherever I want to go wherever I want for treatment. The person we see in this movie appears to have that resource available. Hop on a plane to go to New York, hop on a plane to go to California, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And for those who do not have that luxury, and it is a luxury in a lot of ways, particularly if you don't have the, 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 the finance and, and resource to make that, there's almost an element of not quite resentment, but an element of um, envy in a lot of ways. You know, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could have more than one residence. I wish I could go on a plane and go from New York to California and then fly home and fly, you know, go back and forth. Uh, now, now, one thing be, before I forget, one thing that really struck home, one thing why that really uh, elevated this movie, and I want to mention this before the before he gets to to California, is when this movie was made, is a large reason why this movie is so compelling. And what I mean by that is this movie was made, originally made before 2001. And so when you see the bottom of the screen, when it shows New York City, when it shows 2000, that this is before 9-11. This is before the, 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 the planes flew into the World Trade Center. And when I'm watching this movie, part of me wonders how this story would have played out if he had stayed in New York and if he had been in New York on 9-11-01. Because he was, according to the timeline in this movie, he was in 9-11-01 in California. He was not in 9-11 in New York. And so, particularly when he's at the airport and he, he's uh, taken off the, off the plane and, um, you know, de de detained when he, when he gets off, off the plane. That is something that is a very, not, not many people remember this, but that is a very real um, 
with a lot of the, the fear and paranoia about COVID-19, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the, the fear and paranoia was COVID level and beyond, if that makes sense. So having someone fly on a plane and get apprehended upon arrival to get you know, institutionalized, that speaks to a very real fear in the wake of 9-11. So when this movie was filmed, like I said, it is a significant part of why this movie is so effective. If this movie were made a year or two ago, I don't think it really would have been that effective. I really don't. I don't say that to be mean, but this movie works amazingly, absolutely amazingly as a snapshot in time. It really does. You know, you know, I don't want, I don't want, I do not want to belabor that point, but just, oh, I mean, just, just think about that. Just think how that story would have, would have played out if he was still in New York on 9-11. You'd have it a completely different movie. You already have a different movie already because it started as a basketball movie and it goes to a um, bipolar uh, profile of his recovery. But just think if he had stayed in New York and he was, if he was in New York on 9-11, you would have a completely different movie, an absolutely completely different movie. No doubt in my mind that that would be a different movie. Now, um, one thing that is a huge pet peeve, absolute pet peeve of mine, and you'll you'll see this in um, momentarily when when it cuts back to him, is bipolar is mentioned in this movie as a disease, quote unquote disease. I do not like to. I I do not use the word disease. The Mayo Clinic in the US calls it a disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health in the US calls it a disorder. Um, NAMI and Mental Health America in the US, National Association of Mental Illness, call bipolar a mental illness. I'm not aware of any authoritative um, bodies of medicine or um, psychiatry in the US or anywhere in the world for that matter, who have labeled bipolar as, as a disease. So that is one thing that I, I, that I really don't like about this movie is that someone who is diagnosed with bipolar, they hear the word disease tossed around and they think that they've, that they've got cooties, that they're, that, so I don't, I don't necessarily agree with using the word disease as it relates to bipolar. It's, it's a disorder, it's, it's a mental illness, it's a, it's a mental health issue, but calling it a disease is something that I don't know necessarily if I, if I agree with that. Uh, now, you see with this mom, you see how the, the, the camera is super close up on her face. Going to my, my point about how this movie has an element of um, just a, just a, a, an intimate level that you don't see in other documentaries. Other documentaries, you see them sitting at their desk or standing up. You don't have that same close-up immediacy with this, uh, with who they're talking about. Um, so it's something where, you know, she mentions denial. That's something that we've all dealt with, whether it's you, you yourself or if you do have someone in your life if that person is in denial. Uh, 
Uh, so when she mentions uh, being in denial and, and that being a phase of denial, that's something that really um, you know, struck home and it probably might strike home for, for you and might be a triggering comment as you, as you watch this movie. Um, as, as we're looking back at the movie right now, I believe he is back in New York after 9-11 already um, happened. So that's, it's a post 9-11 New York that he has returned to. And that's another thing as far as when this movie was filmed. Um, post 9-11, there was a lot, and I mean a lot, of not just fear and paranoia, but a lot of people entertaining different uh, spiritual uh, paths and, spirit and, and faith. And uh, whether it's Judaism, whether it's a Christian uh, faith, whether it's a, um, you know, whatever, whatever the, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the persuasion of uh, faith. But that is a huge um, consequence of, of what happened after 9-11 was for a while, you would hear everyone talk about uh, spirituality and their place in the world. And so that's another thing that really strikes me about this, this movie when he talks about that is what he's talking about in the context of it being in, in, in 2002, that's not out of the ordinary. That's not an entirely foreign concept for, you know, for many people. Um, making, a, making a phone call, calling someone, you know, 10, 12 times a day at all hours of the, of the night and in the morning and night. Now that's um, a little iffy, but someone uh, talking about uh, spirituality and their place in the world, that's, that was a fairly common, um, you know, phenomenon, you know, post 9-11 and still is to a large extent. Um, so again, it's something where when you watch this movie in 2020, you get these little, um, these, these little bits and pieces of this story that just take on a whole new level of, um, of resonance in 2020 compared to watching it when this movie first came out. Because watching it years later in 2020 and undoubtedly years from now, you're still going to get that level of relevance because it just got more and more relevant as there's more uh, crises in our world, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's uh, planes being hijacked into the Pentagon and World Trade Center in, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So uh, anytime there's a, um, a challenge facing our world, all of what he's talking about becomes standard um, standard vernacular, standard uh, conversation for many people. Um, now this part where he is in front of the museum and he's uh, kneeling, this is a, um, I still don't know what to make of this scene. I really don't. Part of it feels like mania, like part of his symptoms, but part of it doesn't. Because if you look at this, what he's you know, human, and it's not just the, 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 um, the letter U human, but, but with a V, like it's a, like it's a Greek spelling. It's almost like, like a, um, 
it feels like a performance art. It feels, it really feels like I'm watching a piece of performance art. And I know it, it might seem ignorant and I know I'll get hate mail for saying this, but it really does when you're watching this, it feels like you're watching some, you know, like if not a protest, then, uh, you know, an element of performance art. I don't know what else you would call it when someone puts a piece of paper, you know, human on a statue. Uh, but it's like I said, it's one of the things that really um, jumps out at me. Uh, one of the things that um, one of the things that the that the um, that that the director talks about, and, and which I'll mention, is that this movie raises a lot of valid and pertinent questions about the ethics of documenting someone's struggle with bipolar and being a essentially a spectator being a voyeur being a, a passive observer to that person's um struggles and their their journey through bipolar often when i see if you ever watch on tv on the news you'll often see um news crews that film something not good happening and you often wonder okay well why doesn't that that camera why doesn't the camera operator put down their camera and help that person? I get that same feeling when I'm watching that movie. And so the, 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 the director, um, Ben um, Selkow, when he, when he talks about his responsibility as a filmmaker, um, I don't think it's being overly scrupulous. I think it is a very valid and a very, um, a very relevant and a very necessary um, discussion to have. Um, now, one thing to keep in mind is that if you'll recall from the first few minutes of the movie, he is filming Sam at Sam's request. He wanted this movie to be about him. So when the when the director is is pondering the the ethics of okay, is this is this is this moral? Is this is this crossing any lines? The, the thing to remember is that he is following this, this request for him to be a, a fellow traveler, as it were, on Sam's journey. And so I don't think it's overly scrupulous at all. I think he's being extremely conscientious, being extremely responsible. And throughout the movie, when he mentions, I don't know if I should be filming this, you do get sort of an uncomfortable feeling like, okay, I don't know if I should be, I don't know if I should be watching this. When he talks about his father with the, with these uh, students that he meets as, as his hands are, you know, going through the mud, um, that is a weird feeling. So it's, it's, um, so even though this is a very um, compelling and insightful and educational uh, documentary, it is nonetheless uh, very troubling. It's a very troubling uh, documentary to, to watch at times. And, um, and, and this scene where he's talking with the students is, is, is evidence of that. Um, I've been in situations where someone shares a story about a suicide in their family. Now, granted, 
those those stories being shared were in the context of a support group, in the context of a peer support group, where there's uh, you know an unwritten expectation that this is the safe place and this is the appropriate place to to share that information where there's a confidential setting where someone is in a, in a place where they can be receptive to what you're sharing. When someone is sharing about a family tragedy with a, with a, a stranger in Central Park in New York, there's not necessarily uh, any expectation that the person you're sharing that with has any capacity to be you know, conscientious and compassionate and empathetic or sympathetic as the case may be uh, to the tragedy that you're sharing. And so when he is sharing this um, background about his father, I don't know if it is falling on deaf ears or if there is any compassion being shared in that moment. Uh, but that is one, this is one part of the movie that I found very uncomfortable. Now, one thing I do want to mention as far as the uh, triggering, if you are triggered, I do want to mention a couple different uh, phone numbers. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 24 hours, seven days a week. There's also the NAMI helpline which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Their number is 1-800-950-NAMI. Again, that's 1-800-950-6264. Now this number is Monday through Friday, 10 to six. Um, but again, this is something where um, it's, it's, it's an educational, you know, by no, you know, it's definitely an educational, informative, insightful uh, documentary. But again, going back to uh, what I mentioned about uh, the aftermath of 9-11, um, like he says in the, in, in the movie, in the wake of 9-11, you do not want to be arousing any suspicion, particularly on an airplane, particularly when, and I believe that uh, shortly after 9-11, wasn't there the whole, if you see something, say something, wasn't that, and I'm talking about in the U.S., and I think in other countries, they may have had a different, uh, a different slogan, but in the U.S., wasn't that the big thing, if you see something, say something? Uh, now, one thing I, I, that's a little, another little Easter egg is um, 5150, that is the name of a Van Halen album, and I myself first heard about 5150, from the Van Halen album. Now, Van Halen, obviously, no relation, no relevance to mental health, but it is something that uh, if you've heard 5150, the Van Halen album, 5150, as, uh, you know, as mentioned in this movie, is code for involuntary hold. Now, when we get to the other interview uh, with... Um, with uh, Kay Redfield uh, Jameson, she mentions that the uh, quote from Robert Lovell, depression is illness for oneself and mania is illusion for one's friends. So let me, let me repeat that. Depression is illness for oneself 
and mania is illness for one's friends. And she raises a good point in, in this interview segment as far as individual responsibility. Uh, with bipolar disorder, there is obviously an element of personal responsibility by way of seeking treatment, getting treatment, following your doctor's directions. If your doctor's directions are a particular medication, uh, you know, the responsibility is to take those medications as prescribed. If, the, if your doctor prescribes a support group, you follow those directions to go to a support group and, and so on and so on. So that's the, the element of responsible behavior. As far as the, 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 the symptoms and, and, and the manias and the, and, and the highs and lows, those are not something, those are not things that are in the, 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 the purview of someone's responsibility. That's why they're called symptoms. No one, um, not, not the guy in this movie, not you, not anybody in, in, in the world, wakes up one day and says, you know what, I, I'm feeling kind of bored today. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to, you know, be super manic today. I think I'm going to be uh, super belligerent. I'm going to be super, you know, on top of the world on super, you know, cloud nine today. Nobody wakes up and decides to do that. It just doesn't happen. It's something where so many symptoms of bipolar one, so many symptoms of bipolar two, so many symptoms of a seven day period. And I say seven days because that's the typical minimum for it to be diagnosed. That's not something where you choose to have those symptoms. It's something where you have a responsibility to be aware of it. You have a responsibility to uh, seek treatment for it to the best of your knowledge and the best of your ability. But <laughs> you know, if, if, if there's something that you have no control over, you know, how can you say that it's your responsibility? It, it's, it's not. It's not your fault and it is not your responsibility. So that's an important point that, um, that, that, that Dr. Um, Redfield makes is that that distinction between what's your responsibility and what's not. Because again, I don't think anybody listening woke up and said, you know what, you know what, I think I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll act out today. That might be fun. You know, nobody says that. Now, this scene right here where he takes his meds, this is, I think, one of the most accurate parts of the movie, by far. If you get nothing else out of this movie, this one scene is worth everything. And what I mean is, he talks about his weight gain. He talks about the side effects. He talks about the day-to-day -day, you know, adapting to the side effects of your meds. And that is a, let me tell you, that is a super, super accurate and you know, truthful uh, part of this documentary. I do have, like I said, I do have some criticisms that I mentioned as far as the, you know, calling it a disease, you know, um, but as far as you know, his meds and the weight gain and, um, you know, dealing with the, the side effects. That is this right here, this right here, this is the, the, the nuts and bolts of this movie. If you get nothing else 
this scene right here, where he's on the beach talking about the, um, the side effects, this right here, this right here is the gist of the movie. Because, and this right here, even where he's walking along the, um, you know, do, you know, f you know, step by step, that is just a great scene. That is an absolute great scene, and you don't really say that much in documentaries because documentaries are not really made to have like a super long take, a super long, uh, you know, mise en scene. Mise en scene is what it's called when you, when you uh, block a scene to have it be, you know, looking really, really, um, really nice. So that's something that is, again, this segment of the movie, if you, if you need nothing else, this part of the movie is, is gold. It's gold. Um, so one of the things that, that is, is um, emphasized in this movie is education. And education obviously is paramount to eliminating the stigma, eliminating misinformation, uh, stigma, um, education. And, and here's again, this is a, 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 you know, a callback to that scene just a, a few minutes ago where he's walking and you see him, beautiful shot, beautiful, beautiful shot, which again, you, you can't really say that too often in a documentary. This documentary, just in the scene that we've seen just in the last five minutes, has at least two amazing, amazing shots just amazing shots, which kind of comes full circle with his hobby. Well, not a hobby. Well, in a way it is, but, you know, as far as the, the uh, photography for the basketball, absolutely amazing shots in this documentary that I just want, I just want to acknowledge. Um, but again, the education part, one of the, the ways that you can learn more is looking for other resources for people who are talking about this. One of the things that I alluded to that is kind of nice is that you really are not alone. There really are people around the world. And I know you're going to say, like who? Well, you know, like who? I'll tell you who. There are a couple podcasts I found out about uh, in Iceland, of all places. Iceland. It's not just for Bjork. It's for My Voices Have Tourette's. Podcast. Excellent podcast. MVHTshow.com. My Voices Have Tourette's podcast. In England, England, right across the pond. Um, mental, um, 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 mental uh, health, M mental heads is the name of this podcast out of England. Uh, it's on Facebook, mental heads. It's on a, a, a cast podcast platform, uh, playcast.com slash s slash mental hyphen heads. Uh, Paul and Emma are two co-hosts talking about their uh, journeys through uh, the mental health process in England. Uh, excellent podcast, as is My Voices Have Tourette's. Excellent podcast. Iceland, England. How about, um, you know, in um, Glasgow? I believe this is in Scotland. Uh, there's a uh, fanzine, uh, The Glitched um, magazine. A fanzine is a low... Uh, circulation, low budget publication. There's a um, Twitter, uh, twitter.com glitched mag, and that's uh, Twitter uh, glitched, that's capital G, L I T C H E D, capital M A G, so Twitter glitched mag or Twitter 
the Mitch jam. And that is a glitched uh, zine about representation of um, mental health in the media, such as what we're talking about now. So there's a lot to, um, to explore, a lot to learn, a lot to discover, a lot to um, connect with. Um, there's a little more movie to, to, to go. Um, this is another great shot. There's a lot of great shots in this documentary where it cuts to his face and then it goes to a super close up. There are a lot, a lot of super, super close ups. Now, cl super, super close ups are often done for a comedic effect in, uh, in, in fictional movies. Uh, they're not done for comedic purposes here. Um, a lot of really, really good shots in this movie. I just want to emphasize, you know, I can't repeat that. I know I can't emphasize that enough. In a documentary, of all things, in a documentary, to have so many excellent shots in a documentary. Um, I'm starting to ramble on and uh, go off on a tangent and, and whatnot. Um, you're probably getting bored by me, and I don't want to bore you. <laughs> I definitely do not want to bore you by any means. So I'm going to bid adieu for now. Um, I do thank you for listening. Um, we're going to have more movies coming up, uh, more movies intended to be a commentary track. Um, so I do thank you for listening. Uh, be safe, be well, and remember, you are not alone. I will be holding down the space for you. Uh, thank you again for listening. Take care. Talk to you soon.